0: these voices lay in silence for 40 years or more they'd been kept in a crate a small wooden crate marked as tina tells us roast beef product of argentina in the bottom drawer of a basement that reeked of mildew and mold no danger they'd be telling their stories or their secrets to anyone anytime soon so tucked away were they until the time came for her father to show her where to find his papers when he finally passed away. The crate held letters and some keepsakes. A Pandora's box? Not exactly. Here's one of the letters Charlotte, North Carolina, June 22, 1925. Dear mother, will you write a few lines? I am sick and it looks like I can't get any better so I'm going somewhere, or to the hospital. I don't know which one, and I want you to come up here. Now listen, Ma, I want you to come right now. I'm sending the money, so don't disappoint me. Clyde is coming to go with me. Now be sure and catch the next train after you get this, for I must see you right now. Oh, well, I'm too sick to write any more. but catch the train. We'll close and look for you Wednesday." And if you don't come Wednesday, I will look for you not later than Thursday. Don't write. Come. Signed, Lizzie. In these letters, we hear from Lizzie and her mother, Kitty, Ma, and even from Clara, Lizzie's sister-in-law. This was 2012, in the basement, and Tina had already written a book about Southern women, Southern women writers, in fact, and the characters they created that she calls Bells Gone Bad. The best-known example, Scarlett O'Hara in Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, characters who defy the tradition of the typical Southern Belle. And Tina keenly observes at the conclusion of book these 19th century women authors often are rejected by literary critics because they're thought to focus too narrowly on domestic settings and concerns and ignore more universal issues but Faulkner's greatest works also focus on the home and family like him these southern women writers use the relationships and routines of their characters as lenses through which to view more sharply the entire society and its beliefs that from the study the bell gone bad by Bettina Ensminger issued by LSU press and what's intriguing is that she has recently written a memoir featuring women from her very own family whom she refers to as misfits that is women who in different ways defied authority and suffered the consequences in the repressive culture of 19th and 20th century South Carolina. And she includes herself in the genealogy, both in her defiance and as a beneficiary of their defiance. Bettina Ensminger is a professor of English at Bloomsburg University. She holds a Ph.D. in English from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is the author, as we suggest, of The Bell Gone Bad, White Southern Women Writers and the Dark Seductress, and Contemporary Reconfigurations of American Literary Classics. Her family memoir, The Beak in the Heart, True Tales of Southern Misfit Women, was published in October, by Rivercliff Books and Media. Bettina Ensminger will read with her colleague at Bloomsburg University Thursday, February 17th at 6 p.m. in Carver Hall. We had a chance to speak with her before the reading to ask about the new book, the new memoir, and how she came to reading and writing in her own life.
1: I was an avid reader. I think some of the earliest books I got into were Louisa May Alcott's books. I remember checking Little Women out of the library in probably third grade, but just having to renew it over and over and over again because it's a big book, and it took me a long time to read it, but I enjoyed it. I just was kind of going at my own pace. Her books were probably the first real novels that I got into, but then I, I read throughout middle school and high school, and I think I got into what people consider serious literature more as a high school student. And I remember being outside, tanning in the sun back when I did that sort of thing in high school over the summer, and reading The Sound and the Fury. So, again, I, I don't think I fully grasped everything, but I just loved his language, and I, I loved the the way he was evoking place. And so Faulkner became one of my favorite writers starting then and still is today. So a lot of it, I mean, growing up in South Carolina, a lot of what he was saying about Mississippi, I could still, it resonated. And um, that, I think made his work particularly interesting to me.
0: Now, at the same time, were you doing little poems or were you writing little stories?
1: You were. (laughs) Yes, I I was, I think I considered myself a poet in high school and and as an undergrad in college. I, I wrote poems that were, you know, published in the school's literary magazines and things like that. And I think mainly why I was... Sticking with poetry at that point is I I didn't really have the stamina or the patience to write longer pieces, but I really enjoyed playing with the sounds of language and, you know, there's also the, I guess, the pleasure of expressing yourself in some sort of artistic form.
0: And we know that places in the country have their own diction and their own rhythms of speaking. And there is probably a stereotype about the Southern diction and so forth. But when I was thinking about what you were undertaking in your book, the evoking of the lives of Southern women and giving them their voice, what about growing up in South Carolina and the language that you were immersed in, probably speaking yourself?
1: I tried to capture some of that in the book, just kind of colloquialisms that were common there, but I don't hear in Pennsylvania. Thank goodness for me, my older relatives were real storytellers. They liked to talk about their experiences, and I tried to capture things in as much of what I remember of their voices as I could. And I think that those unique voices kind of help to give something a flavor for the people who are talking and the backgrounds. I think it helps to create character.
0: When you mentioned storytelling, I noticed at least two references. One I wrote down in the southern vernacular, telling stories is the same as lying. Tell us about that equation.
1: Well, it it is true that especially older southerners and more proper southerners the word lie is is a little too harsh and if you are you know being admonished as a child you'll be told don't tell stories or are you telling me a story and what they really mean is are you lying to me and often it'll be used as a euphemism telling stories for lying so that's where that came from but i bring it into the book because of course memory is a tricky thing and i am telling things that i remember but that doesn't mean it would be the exact same story that you know some other relative of mine would remember if they were there so memory can kind of play tricks on you and shape the way You shape the experience from your own perspective, but also there are parts where I create conversations among people, the the conversations that took place before I was even born. So I'm trying to just recreate what I imagined to have taken place based on stories I was told later, but I wasn't there, and those things are somewhat fictionalized, but just trying to stay true to the later stories that I heard about them. So I I think that's why I chose to put that comment about telling stories being the same as lying in the book.
0: And when you talk about just now the conversations as you so well described it, you actually have a chapter called Correspondence, and it's as if there's a treasure trove of memory you're presented with, and then you have a box of letters to draw on, and you choose so wisely. It's as if you're having a conversation with the writers and the recipients. Would you talk to us about the correspondence chapter?
1: Yeah, that is kind of the the center of the book for me. That was the inspiration for writing the book. Just as I describe in the book, my father gave me the box, and it really does say, you know, roast beef product of Argentina on the side of the box. It's it's really old looking wooden box. But I found these letters inside and I was fascinated by them. I was fascinated by the voice of the woman, Kitty, who was the author of some of them and her relationship with her daughter that gets recorded in them. And I, I just wanted to preserve them somehow, and I wanted to explore them. So I I asked more questions about Kitty and from other relatives, and I did a little bit of research online to find out a little bit more about her. But then there are some parts of it where I just have to kind of speculate about motivations or, or what exactly Kitty is talking about in her letters but I, I also found some correspondences if in a, the different meaning of the word between Kitty's life and her relationship with her husband and my somewhat difficult relationship with my father. My father reminded me very much of what I perceived to be the character of her husband based on the way she wrote about him in her letters.
0: And you do it deftly so that we get a kind of contemporaneous sense.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Of course, it took a lot of drafts to get those kind of transitions that jumped from one time to another, but the correspondences themselves seemed pretty natural to me. I I felt that there were definite overlaps between the past and the present
0: you're considering the limitations, the women we meet in your family in the past and the constricted lives they led. And one of the ways we meet your mother is in your considerations of how she handles family situations. Well, I just do that because it's easier to make peace. So her relationship with your father is a way that we get to see how she lived with restrictions.
1: Yeah, I think that's also something I'm pretty fascinated with in the book, how the role of being a woman, and especially in the early 20th century South, was a pretty limiting one. And the women who stayed within those roles, who did what they were supposed to do, had very little freedom to express themselves. They they were pretty much just doing what husbands or fathers wanted them to do. And my mother, I consider to be part of that, even though, you know, she was married in the second half of the 20th century. But in many ways, her relationship with my father is a really old-fashioned one. But I also looked at many other female relatives who stepped outside of those norms and stepped outside of the proper role. But That cost them a lot, and I look to them as sort of um, maybe precursors, people who who challenged constraints, and in doing so, maybe helped to weaken the constraints and create greater freedoms for me living in the 21st century.
0: You describe your own behavior as a bit rebellious, and I wonder if— that came from your nature as who you were growing up? Or do we get a sense in these stories that Aunt Ella was somebody that you were thinking about, maybe not consciously, but there was that example? Is that part of the weaving that you're doing for us?
1: Yes. Oh, I guess growing up, I just was fascinated with Aunt Ella and Aunt Rosalie because they were mysterious. And that there was something a little bit taboo about them that when I was a child wasn't really talked much about, but then it was something that I could discuss with my mother when I was older. So I was just fascinated because they were mysterious. But I think as an adult, it's when I began to see them more as kind of people who did challenge a system and maybe make it more possible for me not to fit into the role that my mother and father very much wanted me to be in.
0: We talked about the double sense of correspondence. What about the sense of, you mentioned mystery and mysterious, what about the secrets? We get a great sense that, oh, don't say that, or somebody might be listening in, or those sorts of things. Secrets are pervasive here.
1: Yes, and I guess what I imagine is in most kids' lives, they're aware that things are being withheld from them, you know, as they're growing up. Adults are always saying, well, you're too young for that, or you you don't need to know that. But then I think what happened a lot in my family also was things you did know, (laughs) you weren't supposed to share with anyone outside of the family as well. And the idea of it kind of echoes uh, another book that I loved. It's Maxine Hong Kingston's Woman Warrior And in that book, she begins the book with a line where the Chinese mother is talking to her Chinese-American daughter and saying, you must never tell anyone what I am about to tell you. But of course, the whole story is telling all of us what her mother had told her. So I think that kind of adds to some of the intrigue of a book is when you're disclosing secrets.
0: <laughs> and I think we can't in 2021 talk about a book involving anything about the South or anything about the United States without raising the question of race. And you mm-hmm. go right there.
1: Yeah, uh, that's, that's what I decided to open the book with, because I think it kind of influenced a lot of a lot of aspects of my life and probably a lot of aspects of most people's lives who grew up around the time I did in South Carolina. I was born in 1967, and I didn't realize it at the time, but when I started elementary school, the schools had not been integrated for very long. And at the time, I, I just thought, well, this is the way it's always been, but it was a new thing. And people were still very much struggling with the change. I I think my parents, as I mentioned, were very old-fashioned in a lot of ways. And one of the ways they were particularly old-fashioned was the idea that white people and black people led their lives very separately. And interracial romantic connections were definitely off-limits. They were taboo in their eyes. So that's something I try to explore in the book, both from the point of view of the past and the legacy of slavery and how that still affected the way people lived when I was growing up in South Carolina.
0: You start with the family genealogy and the keeper of the family tree, and she's open at first, and shuts down. Speaking of secrets...
1: Yeah, she definitely. When she found out that I wanted to talk to her about our family's genealogy, she was very excited. But then, when she found out exactly what part of the family genealogy I was interested in, which was a distant great 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 uncle who had had a relationship with one of the enslaved women he owned, and they had had children together, she didn't want to talk about that, and she was very reluctant to confirm anything or share resources about that and really suggested that it, it was pure speculation and there was no proof for it at all. So, one of the things that I try to explore is, is some of the proof that I believe is there, but also the implications of denying the existence of this relationship and denying the children of this relationship.
0: And in that regard, too, you have a tremendous capacity for compassion. You're compassionate for those children and what they have lost, and also Aunt Ella and Cousin Dale. And you,
1: mm, yeah. you,
0: you could just make a caricature of Cousin Dale, for example.
1: Yeah, and, and I... I guess I remember these people all fondly at times, you know, from times in my life. And Dale was somebody that, even as a child, he seemed to be just this tortured soul. But he covered it up by laughing and joking and having a good time. But I think he, he had a lot of pain inside based on, you know, the fact that his mother and father were never married, and his father abandoned the family, and he grew up with a stigma in the time period because of his status as the, the product of an unwed mother. But he eventually just, I think, drank himself to death, and it, it's kind of a, a story of loss and a story of grief in a way.
0: And there's lots of heartbreak here, lots of heartbreak. Mm-hmm. You tell us, if you would, about the arresting title of the book.
1: Oh, yes. The, the title is The Beak and the Heart, True Tales of Misted Southern Women. And the title actually came about, I was going through a divorce and feeling very raw and heartbroken myself, and... In kind of just one quiet afternoon, I was sitting with my kids, who were probably 8 and 12 at the time, and we were reading together, and we had picked up Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, and I was reading it out loud to them, and I got to the part, the narrator says, take thy beak from out my heart, and take thy form from off my door, quotes The Raven nevermore. And as I was going through the poem, I was trying to explain different parts of it and what it meant. And I got to that part about the beak and the heart, and I just kind of understood then exactly what it meant. It's, it's kind of the pain of loss and mourning that the narrator feels and is representing through that image of a beak stuck into his heart. And that kind of inspired the, the title for the book.
0: You use that as an epigraph, don't you, as well? It's, yes,
1: those few lines that I just quoted are the epigraph to the book.
0: Most folks remember Once Upon a Midnight Dury. Well, I want that part, but maybe we don't remember the beak in the heart part.
1: My publisher and I kind of talked about it and went back and forth a little bit because you know, we weren't sure would people recognize it, but I think with the epigraph included, you know, immediately you can see the epigraph and go, oh, yeah, I remember
0: that. Now, you just talked about reading to your children. What about reading for us? Do you have something that you might share with us?
1: Um, Yeah, I do. I would like to read an excerpt from the story that's called Rosalie's Commitment. And it's about my great aunt who was committed to the South Carolina State Hospital Her family had her committed, and this was in the mid-1950s. She was in her probably mid-30s, and she ended up staying in the state hospital until she died in 1998. So at least 40 years she was there. So I'll just read from the beginning. Behind one of the facilities owned by the South Carolina Department of Mental Health in Columbia lies a graveyard surrounded by a chain-link fence. Unlike most cemeteries with their arrays of geometric stones projecting from the ground as testaments of loss and love, this one holds only rows of flat rectangular granite, each stone about the size of a small mailbox. Here lie hundreds of the hospitals dead, arranged chronologically and dating back more than a century, the earliest ones engraved with only a number. Runners of centipede grass encroached on the markers nearest the gate. These stones were stained by dirt and dotted with moss and lichen, so I knew they marked the cemetery's oldest inhabitants. I walked across the grass, scanning the rows, until I found at some point in the 20th century, the stones had been engraved with the deceased patient's names and dates of death. I found the one I had been looking for, Rosalie Pittman, 1998, near the far left corner of the yard. I met Rosalie only a few times. I remember visiting her once at the State Hospital on Bull Street with my mother and grandmother when I was about 10 years old. Rosalie lived there with her middle-aged son, James, which I thought was nice for the two of them. Rosalie and James both had faded ginger hair and wore glasses, and Rosalie's jaws sank in because she had lost all of her teeth. Her voice sounded muffled, and she moved as if her nursemaid's shoes were weighted with iron soles. She was my grandmother's sister, about 10 years younger. Her family had her committed a few years after her husband died, in the mid-1950s, when she was in her mid-30s. On the day of my visit, she must have been about 60. As a child, I didn't know why she had been sent to the asylum. She just seemed old, quiet, and I assumed crazy. Now I wonder how much a woman had to drink, how many men she had to bed, how violently and frequently she had to swear before a mental institution seemed the answer.
0: Thank you. And you raised the question, and we see it, don't we, in literature about women who are transgressive. Mm -hmm. They wind up put away, and that's the case of your real great aunt.
1: Yes, yes. And she was another person who was always a A great mystery to me, so that's part of why I wanted to try to find out more about her and explore her life a little bit and give her a voice, hopefully, through this book, because it seemed like the life she lived at the time did not allow her to have one
0: you're curious and you're uncovering all this material and then you're giving it shape and giving it a form so that we can interact with it. But as a member of this family, how did you grow having immersed yourself in this material and then putting it together for us?
1: I, I think I um, grew to accept some of my own shortcomings as I was writing to kind of acknowledge more the the way I contributed to things not working out sometimes. So that that's definitely one way I can see that I've grown. I think that we tend to want to shift responsibility for things oftentimes to other people. But if we can acknowledge them and, and understand them, then maybe we can make our lives better. So that's something that I think writing this book helped me to do. But also I hope one of the things that I was able to do was just let, let these women's voices be heard and in a way kind of pay tribute to them for the strength that they had that wasn't really appreciated in the times they lived.
0: Bettina Ensminger, professor of English at Bloomsburg University, speaking about her family memoir, The Beak in the Heart, True Tales of Southern Misfit Women, published in the fall by Rivercliff Books and Media. She and her fellow faculty member at Bloomsburg in the English department will have a reading as part of the Big Dog reading series Thursday, February 17th at 6 in the evening in Carver Hall, the Kenneth S. Gross Auditorium. She will read from The Beak in the Heart and Anne Dyer-Stewart will read from her recently published poetry collection, What Girls Learn. For more information on the web, bloomu.edu, bloomu.edu. That's Bettina with one T, -T B-E-T-I-N-A. She tells us her Aunt Carrie gave her that name. She saw or heard the name in a film and suggested Bettina as a good name for this baby. And Bettina's mother thought so too. Bettina Ensminger, professor of English. She has a PhD in English from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and she is the author of The Bell Gone Bad, White Southern Women Writers and the Dark Seductress and Contemporary Reconfigurations of American Literary Classics. The Beak in the Heart, Two Tales of Southern Misfit Women, published by Rivercliff Books and Media, and Dr. Ensminger will read from that work with her colleague Ann Dyer-Stewart. Thursday, February 17th at 6 in the evening in the Gross Auditorium of Carver Hall on the campus of Bloomsburg University. For more information on the web, bloomu.edu, bloomu.edu.